Well, good morning, everyone. We're looking at um, the uh, bronze serpent in the wilderness. And I believe James has been working your way through from Genesis, is that right? You're working your way through the... Doing verse by verse through from Genesis to... No? <laughs> Just bits. Okay. All right, so we're doing... We're up to the this section in Numbers and... Uh, we are um, en route to the promised land with Israel. God has redeemed uh, Israel out of um, Egypt and they are on the road, as it were, moving out um, to um, uh, moving towards the promised land. Now, one of the things in our life is that uh, is that if we are of good faith, uh, life um, takes on a really good view in our hearts. Uh, Paul says to Titus, uh, to the pure, all things are pure, to the corrupt, all things are corrupt, quoting from the Psalms. So in other words, if you're of good faith, uh, what that means is that you are able to understand the goodness of God and your conscience is cleansed by the grace of God and your conscience is clear, and so you see uh, the things that God is doing, the good things that God is doing, the things that he's planning, and you see the goodness in the creation, you see the wonders of of uh, of salvation, and uh, because you've got a clear conscience, you see that and you understand it. Now, if you don't have good faith, uh, your conscience becomes like a dirty... Um, window, and when you look out through the window, what you see is just uh, the dirty window. So everything looks like it's um, dark and smudgy and ordinary, and uh, so that's why uh, we need to have good faith. Now, this whole journey to is to the to, to the promised land is about. Um, really um, God training Israel to be of good faith, to trust him along the way. Now he's done everything up to this point to help them to believe, uh, and but that faith needs to be an ongoing faith, not just a faith at the start, but there needs to be what we might call a discipline of faith, to trust him all the way through from the beginning to end. So God has been doing that. So the basis of faith is really set out in these books in the first part of the Bible. Uh, we have, uh, in Genesis, God is the one true creator. That's the basis of all of our faith. So that all, everything comes from God. He's the creator of the entire cosmos, all things seen and unseen. He's the giver of life itself. So that is the basis of faith. In other words, uh, to be in good faith... To, to, to understand faith uh, at the centre, at the core, is to understand that we are creatures and that God is creator. And God insists that we actually live like that, that we actually live faithfully and trust him because he's the creator. So when you come to faith, it's just simply acknowledging God as the creator and then uh, we uh, the way that comes to us is through salvation and that's through our redemption, uh, where God not only creates the world, but he creates a people and he creates life 
out of darkness. He gives light into the darkness of the world. And uh, when we believe <coughs> in that or when we believe in Christ, if we put it into the new covenant terminology, we, uh, we come into uh, a newness of life through salvation and we come to trust that Christ is the only way to uh, come to know God. So we actually trust, really, faith is simply trust, essentially, to start with. It means that we are to uh, just trust God all the way through. And God is pleased with that. He'll forgive all of our sins when we believe. He forgives sins just by trusting him in that way. So, and when, by the time, then we get to Leviticus and God organises, he, he brings Israel out, they come, they, they're his people of, his community of faith, if you put it that way. And then we get to Leviticus and he's organising them to worship him because God is the creator and he must be worshipped. There's, there's, there's no option with that. So he organises the priesthood and the people uh, are organised under their priests to be able to come to approach God uh, in, in, with holiness uh, in a sanctified life by just obeying the law and they could come and they could approach God and they could enjoy his presence and worship him. And that was a great thing for Israel, by the way. The, 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 the ancient world was a brutal world. It was a dark, godless, demonic uh, world of pagan culture and Israel had this beautiful tabernacle in the middle of all of that and they could come to God and they could see his beauty and they could enjoy his grace and they could they could uh, uh, just uh, respond to him with their prayers. It was truly a really wonderful gift of God to give them the tabernacle and to bring them to worship him in the, in the way that he did. And by the time we get to Numbers, we've got this book where they're on this, they're on the, on route to, uh, to uh, Israel. No doubt James has put, taking you all through this, so I won't spend a long time on it. But along the way, the, one of the big themes of Numbers is that God is the provider for Israel. So not only is, the, is he the creator, as we read in Genesis, and the creator not only of the world, he's the creator of his people, but he's also the, and he's the creator of a people who worship him, but he's a creator of a people who, uh, who, uh, who, uh, he's, he's the provider of, of those people who, who, uh, who, is, who he has created. So God is the provider, and that's basically what Numbers essentially is all about because they're en route, and God provides for them all the way through. He provides for them materially. He gives them um, a food. He gives them manna. He gives them quail. He provides for them spiritually, and a big uh, theme in Numbers is that Moses, you know, they get into strife, they turn back to rebellion, <coughs> as human beings do, and Moses always prays for them. And you find that when Moses prays, uh, God acts favourably and uh, his grace is enacted once again. So, um, so, but the root cause, you see, the... We, we come to believe in God like Israel, and that's what Israel had to do, but they had to continue in faith. And that was a demand of God, that you, 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 you keep your place as a human being, as one of his creatures in this world, and one of his people, and you keep that place, and you remain in faith all the time, every step of the way. It's absolutely essential. There's, 
You can't live outside of faith. Paul says everything that is not of faith is sin. So faith is essential. So God will um, do things in a certain way so that we actually come to faith or we're growing in faith. And he's always working that way. We don't actually understand our hearts very well at all, if we're honest about ourselves. Uh, but our faith needs to be grown by God all the time. And uh, in Deuteronomy, which gives a summary in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, gives a sum- summary of this route to the promised land. Uh, yet, yet in spite of this word, God came to them all the time. If you remember, he came in the pillar of fire and pillar, pillar of cloud and he was speaking to them. And uh, he's, and uh, yet they they struggled to keep on believing, didn't they? And Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 32 and 33. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by what uh, by what way you should go. So the, 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 when, we, when we talk about the, the, the core issue of hum, the human heart, the, the core issue is our faith. So if we, we think, well, the core issue is our moral rebellion. Well, it is, uh, in a way, in a secondary way, but, our, but if you get right underneath the, the human condition, the, the core issue is our faith, our, our allegiance to God, our acknowledgement of him in life. He must be acknowledged. He's the creator. He's the redeemer of his people. He's the creator of the universe. And when there is a lack, when faith uh, is not there. God brings judgment into the situation, and rightly so. And that judgment can work two ways. It either works to bring us to expose the fact that we've hardened our hearts to the point that we will not believe in him, or that judgment works in a way in our hearts, that discipline, if you like, works in a way so that we then humble ourselves again so that we actually bow the knee and worship God and actually come back into genuine faith. So faith is really important for us. And faith, as we're seeing in, in this book of Numbers, faith involves taking risks. It involves not being comfortable all the time. It involves God moving us from, uh, like with Israel, they had to move from Egypt and they had to get to the promised land. And it was a situation of discomfort for them. They were out of what they knew culturally because most of them were brought up in the Egyptian culture uh, and then they were on the move and they were having to trust God every step of the way for their food and for everything they were. Now this is, this is what God insists that we do. Uh, and, uh, so there's this working out of this, uh, incredible life. And then we see that Moses prays once again in our text. If we read, if you remember when there was a problem with the fiery snakes biting them. And then Moses prays and um, their faith uh, is renewed at that point, I suppose. Well, actually, they turn back and they, they have to be taught a, a few more things. And some of them actually didn't come into faith and so they were removed from the community because they actually weren't in the faith. But remember, but at that point, remember, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Remember he said that? And then Peter denied him. But uh, then we find Peter at Pentecost standing up uh, 
proclaiming the word. Uh, and why did he come through in faith? Uh, not because of anything he was doing, but because Christ prayed for him. And so the grace of God is always working to encourage us, to equip us, to empower us uh, to come into faith. You might remember in Romans 8, um, Paul says that Christ is interceding for us and the Spirit is interceding for us. So we need to be prayed for to be in faith as well. So we need God to be working in the world for us. We need others to be praying for us. We don't come to faith personally without people praying for us. We never do. You know, I take great encouragement because my parents, the older they got, the more and more they prayed. And they would spend every morning and they would sit down together and they would pray through our family and they would pray for people in their church. They had a time of prayer every day. And I am sure that those prayers were essential to for, for us as a family, for my wife and my children and for my, for my faith. Because I have a, I don't know about you, but I have a self-destruct button in me. Are you like that? I have. Give me, give me some, just give me some time by myself. Take away all of my church. Take away the love of my wife. Take away the encouragement of the word of other pastors and the church. And I would self-destruct just like that. But people pray. The Lord Jesus is praying. The Holy Spirit is praying. Moses is praying for the people here. So God works graciously all the time through prayer to keep us into faith. So, um, so we need to, uh, see, one of the things we need to be continually, we need to pray for one another is that, that, that we understand the grace of God and the goodness of God and that we come into, we actually humble ourselves all the time and come to faith. Uh, remember Nicodemus, uh, that, that great story where Jesus said, well, unless you're born of the water and spirit, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, you can't see the kingdom of God, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't understand the thing of it. So he's a man. He'd been, he, and Jesus said, well, you're a teacher of Israel. And you don't understand these things. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying, you know, you're a teacher of Israel. You should understand that God is the creator of the world. He gives birth. He gives life. Like children don't choose to born themselves or to be born. Get me, grammar, get me English right. They don't choose to be born, do they? And John says, we don't choose to come into salvation either. Same thing. John chapter 1. And uh, here we have uh, Nicodemus not understanding, well, if you're going to come into salvation, you've got to understand this, that God is creator and that he's the saviour. And you don't understand. And you're the teacher of Israel. So in other words, the danger for us here today is that we can sit in our church and we can listen to sermon after sermon after sermon. We can read our Bibles to back to front. You can be a pastor like me. Read your scriptures. Study at theological college. But you don't understand. Because you're not a person of faith. So God, you see, and that's unthinkable. See, it's unthinkable for a creature to take up the place of a God in the universe. And if you're not a person of faith, that is what you're actually doing. At the, at the fall, 
you know, you will, they, they will be as they'll be as God. That was the problem. They thought they could be a God. So we have to learn not to be like little gods walking around. And so there's this uh, incredible thing. Now let's let's talk about. See, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Oh, the good old days back in Egypt. Doesn't say in Ecclesiastes. Never say, "Give me the good old days." It says that in Ecclesiastes somewhere. So they had lost all their comforts, and it was pretty miserable in Egypt. But, but what? So what is going on? God had actually met with them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and He had led them, and He He poured out manna from heaven every day. They they wanted meat, so God gave them meat, and uh, God continually stayed with them, even though the community fell into terrible rebellion from time to time. So what is actually going on? What is going on? in their desire to Egypt is that they're wanting to connect back with the pagan culture of Egypt. Now, the brass snake that we read about could be translated copper snake. Your translation may have copper or it could be brass. But in any case, copper and brass snakes were a symbol, they were an idol in Egypt. They know this because they've dug them up out of Egypt from this period. And so they wanted to, really what they wanted to do, in the heart, the revelation of all this story, in, in, in their faith, they wanted to go back to Egypt. So God sends snakes. So what he does is he puts, he puts his wrath upon the people. And he's saying, if you want Egypt, you can have Egypt. If you don't want your creator, if you don't want your redeemer, and if you want Egypt, and if you want Pharaoh, because that's ultimately what they were saying, you can have Pharaoh and you can have Egypt. That's what Paul says, the wrath of God is the giving over to sin. If you want something, God will may give it to you as a judgment. If you want that more than you want him. Remember the story of the quail. And they whinged about the quail. Remember that? Earlier on? And we want meat. We want meat. So God says, I'll give you meat, Numbers chapter 11. I'll give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. That's what he says. So be careful what you want in your heart. They wanted it, they wanted to go back to Egypt, you see. So, so he says, right, you can go back to your snakes. Here's the snake. This is Egypt for you. So he gives them Egypt in the wilderness, these snakes. And they're biting them. And that's the thing about idolatry. You might want it, but in the end, it's like a snake or like a scorpion. You, you go to touch it and it just in the end, it bites you and poisons you. So God gives them over to this, to this, their desire for the pagan culture. Now, Egyptian culture is a very serious matter. Egyptian culture, uh, is a, is, is where the whole idea of God is blended into the creation. That's basically, to put it in a nutshell, so the Egyptian culture and idolatry is like, say you get um, gods were treated like humans and human beings were treated like gods. They were basically in the end the same thing. So, uh, you, you know, you had Pharaoh who was treated like a god 
And that, that's the thinking of the ancient world. And that's actually the thinking of our world today, by the way, for most parts of the world. There's a blending. Uh, in the Western world today, there's a, we're going back to, I don't know if you've realised this, but we're going back to Egyptian culture in Adelaide and in the Western world. This idea of blending God into the creation. Whereas the scriptures are saying, no, there is the creator and there is the creation. You must not blend. You must keep them distinct. God is holy. God is the creator. He's the holy creator. And he must be worshipped as the creator. You cannot blend God into the material world. You must never do that. And that's why, by the way, uh, you know, if you follow the history of what's going on, uh, this Egyptian culture, the very thing that Moses is dealing with in the wilderness here, is has come back into our Western world, if you follow through academically, back through the world. Um, there was a, a thing called Hellenism and Gnosticism, I don't know if you followed all these sorts of things, where um, you know the, the separation of God and the creation, uh, of the idea of spirit and matter being separated, uh, that was what the, the very early church, hints of it in the New Testament, but developed in the first 300 years of the, of the very early church. People like Irenaeus dealing with all these things where, you know, everything spiritual is good, everything of matter is evil. So, uh, you get a severity on the body because the body's a second rate kind of thing in, in the whole system of things. So that's Gnosticism. That's Hellenism or Gnosticism, if you like that, pushing in that direction. But then in the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, they, uh, the theologians read all of this. Uh, they blended the Greek uh, god of Toth, which is the Greek uh, wisdom god, this, pag- this Egyptian paganism, and it's blended back into Western history in the middle, of- and it's come right through the Enlightenment, and we're right back into it now. That's what we're in now. So how do you get? How do you get to a point in your culture where you chop the genitals off children? How do you get to that point? How do you get to a point where you celebrate homosexuality, where the, the natural um, understanding and balance of things are thrown out, or distinctiveness of the creation is all thrown out of whack, or you just ignore it, or you chop it off, or you get rid of it, or you, or we just kill the body, we're in euthanasia or abortion. How do we get, how do we get to this point? Well, we get to this point because we've, in a sense, become like the Egyptian pagans. Where we think that matter doesn't matter anymore. The spirit is everything. And we've all got this godness in us. And we just express our divinity in our lives. This is what's going on in the desert with these, you know, we want to go back to Egypt. We somehow had some magic power in all of that. It's idolatry, you see. It's the worship of, of uh, humanity in the final analysis where humanity is seen as God and you end up worshipping yourself and your humanity. You become a divine thing or an expression of the divinity within yourself. And so you get powers. So you're looking for powers in the ancient world. They would be, The magic of the Egyptian world would be that you'd manipulate demons and you'd get control of a demon by giving sacrifices and uh, then you'd gain control. That demon would give you powers. you get kind of divine powers through this demon. 
or this spirit or whatever you want to call it. And then you get control over other powers. So you join this great cosmic war and uh, of cosmic proportions. And that's really, the scriptures are dealing with all that. Psalm 82, where God is seen to be judging all the gods. Yahweh, God, the creator, is on his throne, judging the gods. All these demonic forces that are going on. Now these things are coming right back into our culture as we speak. I've heard more about demonic activity in the last year than I've had in all of my ministry. One uh, theologian, uh, old Lutheran pastor said that he's done more demonic exorcisms in the last two years than his entire ministry. It's from a Lutheran pastor. And I've heard Christians talking about witchcraft in the church. Come All of a sudden, people are coming out as being involved with witchcraft while they they come to church on Sunday, but they're involved with witchcraft. And they're quite happy with that. See, the, and in the desert, see, they're quite happy. They think, oh, I'll just go back to Egypt, you know. You know, you just, in your mind and in your heart, you just if you don't have God as the creator, everything just blends into yourself. And then we, you just go where you get the, the biggest spiritual zap or something like that. Where you feel the most comfortable. And it's a complete rebellion against God. In Hobart, I don't know if you've followed the Dark Mofo Festival in Hobart. You hear about that one? It's a huge festival every year. Just happened in, in, in June every year. And it's called Dark Mofo. So it's all about darkness. Right through the streets of Hobart. Have you been to Hobart? Been to Hobart? Best city in Australia, I reckon. Most beautiful city. Gorgeous place. But they deck, they deck Hobart out these days with, uh, this year they had upside down crosses down the main street of Hobart and in order, and in shows and they had upside down crosses, uh, which is a sign of Satan. And they parade an idol down the streets. They worship the idol. They have a group of priestesses that that uh, worship and pray to the idol. This is in Australia, in the main street. Thousands of people go there every year to watch this. People dancing and celebrating. And they pray down to this idol and they worship the idol and then they burn the idol. And by doing that, they gain control over the spirits. It's all magic. It's what we call... Uh, pagan magic, which has come out of Indonesia particularly, but it's traditional, it's around the world as we speak. That is all coming in. So, you see, there's a great battle. Let, let me put it this way. You see, we, we can read this text and say, well, how does this help me just to live a good Christian life? You can do that. But that's a kind of a very narrow understanding of everything. Let me put it this way. Your faith personally, and the faith of this church is under constant cosmic attack from spiritual powers to destroy the knowledge of God, to destroy his grace, an understanding of his grace, to destroy the fact that he is the one creator of this world and that he's got great plans for this creation, he's got fantastic plans for his people, you see, these Israelites, they're just, they're not far from the land. 
You put yourself into the shoes. What has God done for them? What has God done? Well, Pharaoh chased them out of Egypt, didn't he? He got them out through signs and wonders with, with Moses. And then Pharaoh, who's, who's, who's like a god, isn't he? He thinks he's a god anyway. And he gets to the sea. And the sea represents all the forces of chaos. The demonic, that's what they all represent in the ancient world. So Israel meet the forces of chaos. And all of the seas are churning up in front of them. And he's got, a, he's got this god, this demon come about. So they jam between the forces of chaos and this demon. That's where they stand on the banks of the Red Sea. And Moses, God commands Moses to put his stick down and they just walk straight through. That meant a lot for them. They knew what was going on. You know, it meant a lot when when Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the co-creator with the Father, walking on the water, in control of the chaos, leading his disciples through the storm. So these Israelites have come through and they have been led by God. And God is there with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They get hungry, he feeds them. They fail, Moses prays, he forgives them. He judges those who are not of faith, he takes them off and rightly so. But those who are deemed to be of faith keep going. So this is the context you see. This great cosmic battle that is going on in the heavenly realms is being played out on earth. So our faith is more than just me keeping my little world, my little fishbowl existence and, and having things the way I want them all the time. Because God, this is God's world. It belongs to him. It does not belong to us. He created it. He has authority over it. He determines what is from the beginning and what is to the end. It's his plan. And his plan, his sovereign, eternal plan, is to get the world to a new creation. And he says to us now, come with me. I'm your creator. Believe in me. And don't turn everything in this world into an idol. Don't worship anything else. I've taught you to worship me in the desert. I've given you a tabernacle. You worship me. So this snake represents a lot. It represents an incredible spiritual power in the conscience of Israel. And you see, it took Christ to come to deal with the conscience eventually. But there was enough there for them to, to believe and to know. And there was no mistake that Satan was a snake in the garden, tempting them there. So how does this work out? How does all this great cosmic 
thing that we're talking about, because it is, it is massive, is huge. God created the world, the seen and the unseen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of everything seen and unseen. Colossians 1, Christ is the creator of all things seen and unseen. So God was talking to my grandchildren yesterday, and talking about what... I said, well, God's created humans, he's created dogs and cats and birds, he's, he's created angels, he's created seraphs, he's created all these celestial beings that the scriptures talk about, that the prophets see, and now we see because of the word in our hearts, and so we see all the unseen through the word, so there's this cosmic seen and unseen world, and it's all pressing the battle that's going on for these cosmic powers against God and about us joining with them against God, that's all playing out in our daily life, you see. So how does it actually all, how does all of that come out? Well, it comes out in, through impatience. And the people spoke against God, against Moses. Why have you brought us out of the wilderness to die? Uh, verse four. And the people became impatient on the way. So timing is something we find very difficult to deal with, is it not? God never works quick enough for us. Well, as it seems, but God is not, God is not panicked into doing anything quickly. He does things incredibly wonderfully over time in His timing. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a season for everything and everything has its place, everything. The judgments, the whole thing in the sovereignty of God has its place and there's a season. We're in a season in Australia right now and we could easily become impatient, couldn't we? Impatient, why aren't you reviving the church, Lord? Well, we, we pray for that, of course, that's what we do. But the timing is totally God's business. Jesus said to the disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for us to know the times and the seasons. But it is for us to be patient in faith. So faithlessness works as if you, if you stop, if you have trouble believing God, you become impatient. You lose the fact of his eternal nature and that he's working from beginning to end and he's He's working this incredible plan in a huge cosmos over many thousands of years and he's doing that all at once because he's God and we get caught up in a few minutes or a few decades in our lives and we get all impatient and we want it now like children on a car journey. When are we going to get there? We want it now. We want to get there now. We don't want to wait in the car at all. So that's... Um, that's how it is. So impatience is the first. Our attitude, the way we pray. I had to repent before God just a few weeks ago because I was just impatient with the way he was doing things. And I had to just bow my heart and say, I'm sorry for distrusting your timing and everything. And I just had to bow my heart and confess my sin to him. The second thing. So impatience is the way all of this works out, impatience. Secondly, speaking against authority. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. So, and it's very interesting, the two things there, you speak against God, they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. 
So in other words, if, you, if you're impatient with God, you'll disrespect his authority in the world, his sovereign rule. And then that will play out in the way you speak and act and disrespect your human leaders that God has appointed. That's how it works. Very practical things. This is this cosmic issue working out through our lives. So we speak against Moses. You remember this as the story, probably, has he done Miriam and Aaron rebelling against Moses? He's done Korah's rebellion? He's done all of that and done all of that? Good. So that's how it works out. And they had to come back to faith. And then, in, also in verse 5, why have you brought us out of the wind? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. So people start to grumble. We start to grumble. A grumbling spirit, a discontented, grumbling, whinging spirit before God and before other people. That's faithlessness. How could they whinge about being fed and looked after? You know, Australia, someone said, Greg Sheridan, I don't know if you know him from the Australian newspaper, he said that Australians have become a a country of whinges. We've never had it so good materially. But he can't believe the whinging and the grumbling. You know, the last government, you know, I'm not getting political here because I don't care about the politics, but the last government saved thousands and thousands of jobs, whether you agree with it or not. Well, that's what they did. They gave billions of dollars into the community. And there was not one, no one gave thanks to that at the end of the last government. Not one, I didn't hear one person say thank you. I heard some of the people on the, on the, on the news, but no one in the official process said thank you to the government for what they did. They saved people's jobs. They kept their mortgages going. They kept them in their houses. That's what they did. All that, that's, and so grumbling, a grumbling spirit is like, it's like a cancer and a gangrene that gets into the heart and it destroys the human heart. Jesus, in John chapter 6, they came looking for their food, remember? He says, an adulterous generation chases after signs and wonders. And he criticised them for their grumbling. He had just fed them, but they had a grumbling, whinging spirit even after he just fed them. So this is a serious ill, you see. If, we, if you get into whinging and grumbling before God, it's impossible to get out of it. It's, it sets through. If a church starts to whinge and grumble, it goes right through the community. And usually you end up attacking the leadership, Nothing's ever good enough. It's a very serious issue, this. So, if you find yourself grumbling, repent of it. And they wanted to go backwards and not go forwards. That's the other thing. I'm not trying to go through all this now. So, the Western world, by the way, going back to this paganism that we're talking about. See, Israel were going to the Promised Land. They're moving forward. That's true progressive life, if you can put it that way. We've progressed with all our science, but we've regressed spiritually. Like Israel, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to the snakes and to the to the paganism. The Western world wants to go back 
to Gnosticism and pantheism and all that pagan worship. We want to go back to the barbarian age. You know, Hitler, uh, before World War One, they they were they had they, they they brought back the worship of the sun and the Teutonic. They brought back the worship of the Teutonic gods from the barbarians before Germany, the way where Germany came out of. Right back in the first few hundred years of the, of the of the first millennia, they wanted to get all that back. And what did it do? What did all of that do? It took, it killed 10 million Jews. Extermination of innocent people, death and darkness. That, you see, that is where you, 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 Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And when God came to Egypt, he came in a pillar of fire and in a cloud. His presence and fire, which was light and warmth in a dark world. You move away from the God who is the creator and the redeemer of the universe who we know in Christ and you end up back in that darkness. You go where Hitler took it, the entire nation. And if you're, if you're in a family and you get caught up into that personally in your family, you could take your whole family down into destruction. It does not surprise me today to see well, it does. It sort of grieves me and to see how in families, a single person in our family can take the whole family into the pit of hell now. Have you seen that going on? It's a really serious issue. So this is all impossible to rationalise, isn't it? How could they be like this? How can you, how can you understand, you know, that song we sang, I do not, you know, what's that song? I sin, really, I don't know what I'm doing. I try and work it out, but I can never work it out. I'm always finding myself sinning. That's the human heart, isn't it? So Moses says, I'll put this snake up on a pole, and if you look at the snake, you will live. You get bitten by the snakes. So here we have the answer. This is the propitiation and atonement of God to a fallen and darkened humanity, to his own people. And if you find yourself, the way to faith is only by looking at that snake on the pole. Your sin is incurable. That's in fact what he's saying. But I have given you a way To get out of all of that darkness, to get out of the sting of idolatry. And all you have to do is look at that pole. You just have to trust that somehow that that's, that was the word that came. And so we see in John 3, you see, he says here, Nicodemus says, how can these things? Jesus answered me, you are a teacher of Israel, John 3, 9. And yet you don't understand these things. Truly, I, um, truly, truly I say, we speak of what we know and what we bear witness and what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So listen to God is the answer. Listen to the gospel is Jesus' answer. 
If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Listen to Jesus, who has come, the word become flesh, he's on earth, speaking in the flesh. If you don't listen to Jesus, you won't come to God. That's how it works in the new covenant. Same in, in the similar in the old covenant. If you don't listen to Moses, you don't hear God speak to you. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So all you have to do is come to faith, come to trust, look at Jesus on the cross. Our, there's our snakiness. There's our idolatry. There's our sin. There's our rebellion. There's our whinging. There's our impatience. Hanging on him on the cross. And by so doing, God takes all of that as a sheer gift of his love for us. He takes it all from us and puts it all onto his son. And the wrath of God is poured out on his son. Propitiation. The father sent the son to die and the son willingly obeyed. They worked it out. God does not demand blood from us. He gives blood. And everything in our Christian life is like these people in, in, in Israel. We have to learn one step at a time, like little children, to keep trusting. And if God, who understands our heart better than we do, has to take us through hell to get us there, he will do that. If we belong to him, he will take us through whatever it takes. But he will do it in his grace and his love. His judgments will only ever work for our salvation. That's the paradox of the cross, you see. Judgment is a good thing for Christians. Wrath is a good thing. It creates life through the cruciform action of Christ. It creates life. So these Israelites were then forced encouraged to look to this cross so they, they were set free. So I encourage you today in a world, in the western world in which we live, where God is pouring out his judgments on our paganism as we speak. God is pouring out his, his wrath is coming upon us. And the book, book of Revelation says that Christians are not immune from any of the of the, 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 the the pain and the suffering. Some of us might even die. But as his wrath is poured out, as he gives our society and he gives our churches over to the accommodation of this pagan culture, the only thing we have and the only one we have is Christ crucified. And when we come to Christ crucified, all of the world opens up to us. And God pours his love into our hearts, fulfills, gives us his promises, 
and we see things with a clear conscience. You've, all your sins gone. Your conscience clear. So we must just bow before that cross. If you have to get into your room by yourself, get on your face and go face down before God. Say, Lord, I confess my sins. Only to Jesus do I cling. Only because he has come to take away my sin and my wrath. And thank you, Father, for bringing, to this, bringing me to this point where I can stop trying to be a God, a little demon in this world. Well, that's what some of us are in our families. We become like little demons, driving everyone else mad. Let, bow down and receive the grace of God. It's all taken away. A lot of it. Free, completely forgiven, wrath gone, cleansed conscience and a new hope. Stand up, confess your sins and get on with life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today that you have come as the great creator of the universe and as our great saviour. You have come to us and you have redeemed us out of the pollution and darkness of the world system out of the, the influences of the gods from our conspiracy with them to fight against you. So we pray, Lord, today that you would help us to all see, that you would bring us alive in Christ, that we would uh, share this good news with those around us, with our families, with our society, with at work, Wherever we are, we pray for the church, Lord, that you would have mercy on the church as your judgments come upon it. We pray that you'd raise up gospelers, preachers, teachers of your word, young men to share and to go and suffer for the glories of Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.